Good morning, church. It's good to be with you. Thank you for those of you that have asked about the trip. The trip went fine. We were working with a church that has uh, experienced a bit of brokenness recently. Uh, it was the, it's in the Ozarks, which, you know, these are my people. Um, I understood six words the entire time. We, we were supposed to meet some people for lunch at a pharmacy, which is where they eat. And we missed it. And I stopped at this little storefront. It was, a, it was a Sears. So I thought, yay. But when you walked in, there was no there there. Uh, they had a couple of washing machines and a couple of people surprised I was there. And I said, I, I, I think I've missed where I'm supposed to be. I'm not from here. Can you tell me where this is? And they, they, they were, could not have been nicer. You know, they, they said, go down here to the school administration building. Do you know where that is? No. Um, all right, then. These, next, these words came out of a human mouth. They said, then go down, look on your left. If you see the red mule, you've gone too far. <laughs> I climbed in my truck. Cammy said, did they help you? And I said, I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> but we're supposed to look for livestock. Um, turned out that there's a convenience store called the Red Mule. We had no idea. We were looking. <laughs> but we made it back and we're glad we did. And we're so proud of you too. Look at you and you've got your family with you here. How neat is that today? We're, we're proud of you. Well done. Uh, every time Cammie finds out how long we've been married, she cries and cries. But I, I understand, Sue. But it, it, no, you guys are sweet. We love you so much. And, we, and you probably don't need this lesson. We're on the Song of Solomon today, uh, the Song of Songs. Now, if you're a visitor, what we're doing is we're preaching through the Bible. Every week, we take a different book. Now, sometimes we break up a book into two or three or four parts, like the book of Psalms or Isaiah, which is coming up soon. But normally, we fly over it at about 30,000 feet and give you an overview, and the people are reading along. And this time it's the Song of Songs. Now, some of your Bibles will say Song of Solomon. The reason it has two titles is because we really don't know who wrote it. And the attribution there that said Solomon in some of the old manuscripts is in dispute. Doesn't really matter. What is not in dispute is that eventually it did make it into the Jewish Bible. There were those that didn't think it belonged there because it is firmly sexual in everything it has to say. And people were a bit concerned about that. But eventually, it was accepted as scripture. And by the way, I've seen people write that Jesus never quoted from this book. Well, he also never quoted from Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, or Ecclesiastes. He didn't have to quote from it for it to be considered part of their, their holy book. And yet, when we read it, it can be troubling. When I mentioned that I was going to read this, one person said, well, that sermon's going to be PG-13. Another minister said, as in his experience, that book is PG-35. <laughs> so you're in for a treat, teens. Uh, you slipped in. Um, they, uh, we're going to make this safe. We have wee ears in the room. We're not, going to, we're, not, we're not going to embarrass people intentionally. I can embarrass people unintentionally, but not intentionally. We, we honor you. We're glad that you're here. I can remember once when I told a story at a, at a university, 
um, it was a college then, it's since been turned into a university. And I won't name it, uh, it, it rhymes with Rohio Valley University. And I, <laughs> I, I was up there um, and I was telling a story of the time that I was at the University of Michigan teaching and they asked me to go do a three, uh, well, that, that gives a wrong impression. I was not teaching at the University of Michigan. They called me up to teach for a few days. And I said, great, what's my subject? And they said, women and Christianity through history. And I went, whoa, wrong guy. I do neuroscience. I do uh, stuff like that. You know, if you want to do that sort of thing, yeah, then I'm your guy. And they said, no, you're the only name they would agree to let come. I went, oh, good. So I came on in, and it was sponsored by a radical leftist group that really just wanted a Christian to jump on for a couple of days. So they thought of me, and I thought, why not, you know, so went up and just walked in the first day, looked at them and said, what? That's how I opened. I said, come on, take your best shot. First thing out of the bag, lady stood up and she said, you Christians are against sex. And I said, no, we're not. She said, yes, you are. And I said, no, we're not. We did that for a while because I'm paid by the hour. And <laughs> And eventually, I looked at her and I said, I work for the guy that invented it. She hadn't thought of that before. Well, I told that story at Rohio Valley University. Um, and it was, at a, it was at a Christian lectureship. And so a bunch of guys came up to me in three-piece suits and very worried expressions, holding family edition Bibles. And they said, um, Brother Mead, because I'd said in the group, I said, Song of Solomon's a book about sex. And they said, no, it's not about sex. It's an allegory of Christ's love for the church. Well, I've never had really good verbal breakage, so I started laughing. And shouldn't have, shouldn't have, but I laughed. And I said, all right, hang on. Everything in an allegory, uh, everything being allegorized has a strict corollary. So when he's drinking out of her belly button, would that be like elder selection or what? what? <laughs> and, and come to think of it, I've not been invited back for a long time. But the point, <laughs> point I'm trying to make is this makes us nervous. This makes us a little concerned. How are we going to handle this book? Well, you know, there are some metaphors to be found there. There are some double and triple entendres to be found there. And there are some applications you can make about God's love for the church. But it's primarily sexual in nature. It's about a courtship, a marriage. And then about later on some difficulty in the marriage. And we'll hear some, not today, when you read it, you, you, will, you will see or hear some fairly graphic sexual language. And it bothers a lot of people because, well, we're, we're a little upset about that subject for a couple of reasons. One of it is we're a sex-saturated culture. Sex has been divorced from love and home and privacy and paraded everywhere and made everything, and it has become meaningless because it is separated from love. It is separated from uh, commitment, and we get tired of having it shoved down our heads and minds and ears and throats at all times. I, I, I love comedy, but it's so hard to find comedy that is not on one theme. And I'm thinking, all right, guys, you've made that joke five million times. Move on. 
we get tired of this. And we're tired. If you have wee daughters, you get terrified. And in recent years, if you have wee sons, because now the daughters have learned how to hunt. And it goes both ways. And it becomes a dangerous thing. So we don't want to talk about it. It gets shoved not only into our media, it gets shoved into your media devices. If you don't know this, parents, you need to know that your kids will probably receive pictures. They will receive notes. And we get very upset about these things, as we should. But what should be our reaction? Well, that's perhaps a lesson for another day. But another reason we're very upset about this is we've fallen into the error of René Descartes. That Descartes uh, area, uh, rather era, was that body and, and spirit are two different things. It's almost Gnostic, except he wasn't Gnostic. We, we divided firmly between the mind and the body. That was his thing. Mind and the body are not one. And we've gotten to the point where we separate and we've gone the Victorian route. The Victorians were so hung up about sex that they wouldn't talk about it. It would never be mentioned. And yet their society was rife with prostitution and horrific abuse of women. Because they couldn't talk about it, it just drove it underground. And nobody could address it. And it was being fought. Or the, the battle was not being fought on behalf of the, 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 the women. The women were under attack. And, they are, and if you don't realize how much the Victorian influence has on us, it still has it on us. Some of you, now, not the teens, but your parents and especially your grandparents will remember that when Lucille Ball was pregnant on TV, that was a scandal. And nobody, you could not mention pregnant. You could say with child, but only every so often. They remember the Dick Van Dyke show where the Petries are married, a young, good-looking married couple sleeping in twin beds separated across the room. Why? It was against the law to show them in the scene. Well, now, a lot of those laws have been tossed, but the attitude of, we don't want to talk about it, we don't want to know about it, we don't even tell our kids the proper names for body parts, and therefore, whenever they get harmed, they don't know how to discuss what happened to them. It's a tragedy. This all, this all came out of a problem. We've allowed the world to tell us what to think about sex, whether to talk about it too much or not at all. And somehow we need to remember God invented it. He intended for it to be pleasurable because he could have made it not pleasurable, but he made it pleasurable. We've even got doctrines that are taught by some churches that will say, well, sex is necessary to bring us children, but that's it. Really? In Song of Solomon, there's not much mention of children. It's not, it doesn't really get a look in there. We need to remember how God made us. And that until very recently in human history, people didn't have changes of clothes. They had one garment. When they came home, they took it off. When they were working around the house or in the house, they had on an undergarment usually, but not their clothes because you had to save that. Do you remember Jesus talks about people that are saying, don't worry about what are we going to wear tomorrow? He's not talking about us who look at our closet 
full and say, I have nothing to wear. He's talking about people that have one garment, but it's stained or it's dirty or it's torn and there's no way to get it mended and they worry, what can I wear tomorrow? There is no place to get more. Even in the original version of Scarborough Fair, uh, made a big hit by Simon and Garfunkel back in the Jurassic Age, back, back in the age that produced people like Tim that were here a while ago. <laughs> 60s were not kind to him and he wasn't even born yet. The, uh, the, one of the original verses was you, you loved her because she could make a shirt. You never, by the way, in that song is her beauty mentioned. It's all utility. Here's what she can do for you, buddy. She can make stuff. You're in. It was a different world. We live in a world where we can hide behind all of our clothes, not understanding that they didn't get to do that. Elimination, let's just put it that way, of um, things that one eats need to be processed. That was not considered harmful or bad to talk about. Here, don't mention that. It's polite society. In the Bible, they talk about it. Have you ever been to the third world? A place that was not influenced by Victorian England? Their bathrooms are sometimes a hole in a concrete place right out in the middle of the park. No walls. I remember my mother said, I looked at that and said, I'm not going to the bathroom and I didn't for the first two days. <laughs> we, um, we've gotten hung up and we don't know how to deal with things. So we come to a book that's normally skipped. It really is. I looked at several preaching through the Bible uh, programs that churches had. Almost none of them touched this book. They said, well, it's 52 weeks out of the year. Uh, we've only, and there are 66 books. I'm going, you don't have to stop. You can keep going. But they, they skip it. It's not a single poem, this book. It's a collection. But it does have a theme. It does have a progression, a love story that matures, changes. And while some of it seems very odd to us, the parallelisms, the refrains, the alliteration, the word and the sound play, it would have been very common to them. This is a kind of literature they understood. There was a lot of love poetry back during that time. And the language here, this is very important. It borrows from all aspects of our lives and uses these as metaphors and allegories and similes but you need to get the reflection right. And here's where we get it wrong. Freud is to blame here. Freud tried to say that everything we do in life is sexual. Even the food we eat, how we interact with each other, the way we deal with our mother, all of this, everything has its roots in sex. He was completely 180 degrees wrong. Sex reflects life. Life doesn't reflect sex. And once we understand this, a lot of things come into play and we understand them better and peace comes upon us. I had to spend some time with Freudians uh, doing a course. They were so easy to upset. We'd be, we'd be sitting there eating and they'd have chips, which you would call fries, sitting there and one would pick them up and I'd go, now that's interesting. Why'd you pick that one? And they'd freeze. Because everything to them has a sexual meaning. <laughs> and they're wrong. Sex has the meaning of life, not life having the meaning of sex. That said, 
it'd be good to study the book in depth to help us understand what's going on because without line breaks, without clear signals of who is speaking and when, we can get confused. But we don't have time to look at it in depth, so we're going to fly over it like we do our books, give you a better handle on the book, and leave it to you. Here is the least mentioned book in our churches. The book is written to illustrate God's purpose in marriage. Joy between a husband and a wife. Commitment, growth, development, and joy. Marriage in God's, I, God's plan is a garden to be well-tended, to be well-looked after. It doesn't just happen. It needs to be worked on. You need to put the effort into it. In fact, she even talks about she loves her husband because he keeps the little foxes out of the garden. Guys and women, both of you, do you let the little foxes in the garden? What is, all that means is do you let little things get in the, the marriage, in your mind, in her mind, his mind, in the house, whatever it is, that are a danger to the marriage? She praises her lover because he keeps the little foxes out of the garden. It's a place of pleasure where two people, two completely different people, can learn how to live with each other and learn how to love each other. Remember, this was written before the age of dating. These were arranged marriages. And in arranged marriages, there was still courtship in many, and there was sometimes love, at first, you would be shocked. You might want to do this sometime, but it's going to take you a couple years, so let me just give you the, the heads up. If you read through your Bible, try to find who is, who is said to love their wife. You'll find one example. You'll find Jacob loving Rachel, even crying with joy when he saw her. The others don't mention it. Love wasn't considered to be the draw. In fact, Song of Solomon warns people about the danger of love as the basis. And by that it means erotic love, not agape love that Jesus would bring in later. Love was looked upon as a dangerous thing, and we might do well to remember that. How many times have heard people say, I know they are like this, that, and the other, but I love them. Well, you need to know something. We've been told all of our life that love is blind. That is correct. It is also deaf, dumb, and stupid. <laughs> you don't process well when deeply in love. It's rather like falling out of an airplane. One has a hard time doing their sums and balancing a checkbook on the way down because something else has your mind, mainly terror. And in love, when something else has your mind, it also has your reasoning power. That's why marriage was always done in community so that the community could say, this is a good thing. In Breton to this day, when a couple is going to get married, and I don't believe this is a law anymore, but it's still a firm tradition, so just, it's just done. You'll publish their names in the paper ahead of time, not as a join us in the celebration, but it's called publishing the bands, so that you're able to have time to say, those two shouldn't be married. Either they're related or there are issues with one of them. There's mental illness in the family. Whatever it is, you'd say, no, they should not be married. So you publish the bans. I'm so glad we don't do that here. There would have been a line around the block trying to tell Cammie, don't do this. 
This is a, this is a good book. Take a look at a, verse, uh, a phrase that appears three times in the book. Can we put that up? Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Let me talk to teens for a minute, and also to our people who are going through midlife crisis. We are often told, love, 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 it's, and yes, it is all about love, but the love that many of our songs are talking about are eros, which is sexual love. This, the love that God talks about is agape, which is a love that is stronger than sexual love and lasts longer than sexual love. Sexual love is very, very, very um, beautiful and wonderful, but without agape, it is incomplete, and it becomes dangerous. If love is in its proper place, then it's fine. Take a look at this passage in Song uh, 5 and 1. I've come to, into my garden, my sister, my bride, I've gathered my, my myrrh and my spice, and it goes on from there and just says, eat and drink Drink your fill, O lovers. God's happy with this. God rejoices in this. We have a hard time with this, don't we? I've told you before of the time I was sitting in the back seat, in the middle of the seat, because I had two older sisters. I never had a window. I rode the hump, as we called it. And as uh, we driving along, my mother, oh, sweet mom, said, Oh, you kids in the back seat, look to the left. Look over to the left. Be looking at the left now. And we're all looking over, and there's nothing there. So I look over to the right, and there are two cows um, playing a not altogether successful game of uh, leapfrog. <laughs> I'm trying to be careful here. But, but the one wasn't giving up. I gave, I gave them that. Uh, they, they weren't. And my mother turned to my father and said, oh, they shouldn't be doing things like that right out in the middle of the field. God invented this to be joyful. But I agree, husband and wife, keep it private. That's where it is to be. When two people have committed to each other and God has sealed that commitment in the covenant, they'll be strong. Joy will be a part of their life. Look at this passage. I mentioned it. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. Be very careful about falling in love. This is so powerful. Oh, it burns like a mighty fire. We can, I guess I did put that down, didn't I? Many waters cannot quench it. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. Love is so powerful. Death doesn't touch it. Wealth doesn't touch it. Love is incredibly powerful, so it's dangerous. But friends, in the Song of Solomon, it is, it is shown, and in our lives it is shown, love will outlive even sex. Now, I'm not saying that there comes a time where that has to end, although the kids are now going, ugh. What I'm saying is, those that say, well, my wife has Alzheimer's, so God will understand, no. There is a commitment. We have a covenant. And that covenant, our love, lasts till death. We don't make exceptions for this. Yes, we are more, I'm aware that I'm talking to several here, many, in fact, 
who are on a second marriage or the like because one broke up. And I understand that. God forgives. Let's just make sure from here on we, we do this well. All of us have made mistakes. There's not, a, there's not a holy person in the room. So don't think I'm knocking you. What I'm saying is from this day forward, because that's all we've got. This said, read the book in three parts. It's a dialogue between a man, perhaps a king, and his wife. There's the courtship, the wedding. We can put that up, please, that slide. The courtship, the wedding, and the maturing marriage. And that's it. It's a short book. During the courtship, the man wants to move things right along. But the woman says, slow down. Let's let things mature and grow naturally so that we know it's true, it's real, in its own time. She dreams of a man who will be her safe place, someone she can cling to. And she, there are guards in the story, and the guards are her conscience and the community. It is, it's, a, it's a metaphor. And so these guards, she loses her love, and she goes, and they help her find her love. It just means that you, this is something you have to think about. You have to work through. She clings to him, and she loves her man for many reasons. One of them, ladies, I want to talk to you about this one. One of the reasons she loves him is because he loves her even though she is, quote, dark. We don't know exactly what that means. It could mean that she was of another race. God does not have prejudice and bias within him. Remember, Moses married a black woman, a Cushite, and when people criticized him for that, God punished them because God approved of the marriage. That might be what's going on here. Dark also could be another metaphor for not pretty, not looked at, not, not one of the top people that you'd think of. But this man loves her. Now, why did I say ladies, listen up? Because, ladies, you look in mirror and you pay attention. You notice every line, every flaw you've got. And you're under the mistaken impression that your husband see that. We don't. When we see you, we see that girl we married. We see that girl we dated. And that's why we look at you with that stupid look on our face. You're thinking, I picked up some pounds, my hair's all gray, I got wrinkles. He's over there going, hello. <laughs> and do you hear the joy in the room? Guys, isn't it time somebody said it? We see them as beautiful. They're our girl. We used to, this isn't in the notes, we used to... Um, Oh, Patrick's gone off the notes in Song of Songs. How could this possibly go wrong? <laughs> we used to rescue parrots and raise parrots, and we lived in Michigan for 10 years and loved doing it, long story. But the parrot which stayed with us, we would help parrots find homes and the like, but the parrot that stayed with us that whole time loved us, but because it was a Quaker parrot, they have different sounds they can make and ones that they can't make. So it'd call for me, it'd call for the kids, but it couldn't use, it couldn't say Cammy or Mommy. And so it worked hard trying to figure out how to call her. It just noticed the way I treated her, and it only took, uh, I didn't know it was paying attention, 
a couple of Marx Brothers movies, and it got it. It would either call her with a wolf whistle or hubba hubba. And she would be a little embarrassed at that because the bird was really lusty about it. Go, hubba hubba. You know, she'd walk in. And I'd say, sweetie, if you quiet the bird, even the rocks will cry out. You have to let nature sing. Let nature sing. She loves her man. She knows he's committed to her. There's a tragedy in marriages where you don't know you're committed to each other, where you married, you're married, but you treat it like an eternal engagement where one party can break it off at any time for any reason. Don't do that. Commit for the long haul. God then openly and ble absolutely blesses their physical love in no uncertain terms. They are young, they are in love, all is good, and then the marriage matures. A lot of us thought marriage is going to be sitting on the couch eating brownies watching television. It got more complex, didn't it? There have been some problems in this book, left unspecified. We don't know what they are. There's a reason we put phrases in our vows, like for better or worse, richer or poorer, till death do us part, because all those things will probably cycle in there. We're marrying a person, not a dream, not an idea, but a real 3D event, a person. Full-scale, complex universe and a person. Things change, not always for the better. So in chapter 5, the husband comes to the wife. They've enjoyed a sexual relationship the whole time. He comes and she goes, I'm too tired. I've already done my hair and washed my feet and all that. No. And that's a problem. There, she just refused him from the chamber. Paul warns about this in 1 Corinthians 7. The husband should fulfill his marital duty. Don't you love the way we put, translated that phrase? To his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband in the same way. We're egalitarian. The husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, he said that that was a concession, not a command. That needs to be stated. Paul was working with a situation at the time. But we need to see. She wins in Song of Songs. She wins. Drives her husband away, and that means she lost. And this time the guards, her conscience, and the community beat her up until her husband comes and says, no, you're all right, and holds her, and they're reunited. I'll wrap this up in the next three or four minutes, Mark. Mark needs to get his team up here eventually. In the New Testament, we're told again and again to love one another, and that's especially true for husbands and wives. And in fact, the Bible does use marriage and marital love as an illustration of God's love for us and Christ's love for the church. There's no question that that happens. Ephesians 5 is one of the better examples of this. And so in a sense, the Song of Songs is about us. It is about the church because it's about true love. It's about joy, commitment, and perseverance. And this also, there are also lessons here for our lives. Wait on love. 
Take your time. Allow love to develop naturally. Give your spouse the attention that they deserve and they need, especially when you don't want to. And give them, take the time to truly know your spouse. Encourage them, praise them, avoid criticism. See the good in your spouse that others may not see, like he did when others called her dark. He called her lovely. Enjoy each other, be creative, be playful, delight in each other. Would you stand with me, please? Those of you who are not married and think this lesson has passed you by, I understand that. But please know it's in the scripture. It needs to be talked about. For the rest of us, remember this. Renewing your vow is something we are to do all the time. Renew your vow to your mate. Renew your vow to your God. Renew your vow to your church. For the Bible says one day the church and God will be reunited like a bride coming down out of heaven is the church. And the bridegroom who waits is Jesus. He tells us in a parable of the foolish and wise virgins, you make sure you're watching and ready for the day. May God bless us and may we be the church that Jesus loves.